This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. We're here on the first Tuesday of every month on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Maine-based New York Times bestselling author Colin Woodard spoke in Blue Hill recently about his latest book, Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. Matt Murphy recorded the event. It has been edited to fit in this time slot. I'm Samantha Haskell. I'm the owner of Blue Hill Books. Um, I'm also a member of the steering committee of Word Literary Arts Festival. Um, Tonight's event is a fundraiser for that festival, which happens in October. Without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's author, Colin Woodard. Um, He's an award-winning journalist and best-selling author of most... People, I think, around here know him for The Lobster Coast, which is a perennial Blue Hill Books bestseller. Um, But the book he's here for tonight is Union, um, which we'll be hearing about shortly. He's the state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press-Herald and the Maine Sunday Telegram. He is a native Mainer, so legit cred. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then I just have a little quick anecdote, because in the store... Today, someone was purchasing a copy of Union, and with the 5.5% sales tax, it comes to 17.94. And inevitably, someone says, "Great year," you know, like that classic joke that people make. And I was like, "You know what? I bet it was." And I bet Union will tell us why. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you about that after the event. Um, so, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Con Woodard. Thank you. Thank all of you for coming, uh, for Blue Hill Books for helping to organize this, and uh, WERU for recording, and I'm very pleased that this is a fundraiser for the Word Literary Festival this year, so um, excellent. It's good to see you all, especially since this is, I was realizing driving up here from Stonington that uh, it's the first time I've given a live in-person book talk since before the pandemic, so yeah, right, so thank you all for coming. (laughs) Also realizing that while I've talked about this book a great deal on Zoom and virtually and once in person in conversation, um, I also haven't delivered this whole talk we're giving now in person before. So consider yourselves the inaugural opening night for discussing Union and the troubles facing the country. Um, So I'm here tonight to talk about Union, my new book. It just came out in uh, paperback. It came out, of course, in in the middle of the pandemic in hardcover a year ago. Um, it's unfortunately become more and more relevant uh, with time, and uh, I wanted to discuss a little bit about how I came to write it, get interested in the issues within it, and then unpack a little bit of the relevance for today's events. So uh, how many of you have read American Nations? Quite a few of you, absolutely. Not all, so I'll briefly mention a few things on American Nations, because in a way, you know, my path to talking about the issues in Union came from having written American Nations and some of the questions it left me and many people who read it with. Um, And American Nations said that, you know, one of the most basic things to understanding the American predicament, to understanding this country, its history, its divisions, um, is to realize that it's not one nation but several nations and always has been. That it's a balkanized federation between a series of regional cultures that never expected to wind up together in the same continent-spanning federation. They did, but they started as completely separate 
rival colonial projects on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's the, now the United States. So, and they had completely different ethnographic and religious characteristics and had different ideas about you know, the, the society that they were building, about uh, you know, what the good life entails. They had different religious backgrounds. You know, essentially all the things that anthropologists used to define culture. They were different cultures. The Puritans coming to the shores of Massachusetts Bay and essentially founding the New England space had a very different set of ideas from the Dutch who came and founded the area around New York City with a broader commercial trading culture as opposed to believing you were a you know, covenanted people charged by God to create a Calvinist utopia in the wilderness. The Dutch were trying to create a global city-state like Amsterdam. You got down to the Chesapeake country and you had the lesser sons of English gentry, you know, Lord Grantham's second and third and fourth children who would not inherit Downton Abbey. Sorry, you're out of luck, right? Go join the priesthood or go be an officer in the army until the new world was discovered. And then suddenly the option of going out into the wilderness and creating your own estate was there. So it was a project to recreate the manners of the English countryside and that whole system to reproduce that world um, in, the, uh, in the Chesapeake country. Totally different from the Puritans. The Scots-Irish backcountry, the Spanish settled southwest, and so on and so on. That was the central argument is that if you understood that and that those rival cultures throughout the colonial period were, you know, not friends but often enemies... They sometimes belong to different empires, of course, but even the British ones end up fighting on the opposing sides of the major conflicts of the era, be it the English Civil War of the 1640s or the Glorious Revolution, 1688 to 1689, and so on. They had their own intercolonial conflicts with each other. You know, you had Virginia attacking Maryland and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, the idea that they were all, that we would draw from one history uh, and then in 1776 that we had some shared past was something that the founders knew was not true, but that we have somehow forgotten. And American Nations was bringing that back to the fore. This was something that, you know, they wound up facing a shared threat in the form of the change in British colonial policy in the 1770s, right? Suddenly London wanted all of these idiosyncratic colonies to conform and obey. You know, stop telling us that you have your own rights and your own way of th doing things. The king will tell you, and you do it just like the French king gets to do, and the Spanish king. Why do I have to put up with all this, you know? You know the idea to conform and the conforming of tax policy and such led each of these different clumps of colonies to rebel, to fight against a threat to their respective ways of life. So they wound up in a, you know, working together in a sort of, you know, loose military alliance, you know, the, the Continental Army with a treaty organization, the Continental Congress that was going to try to organize things and keep supplies going and move from city to city depending on who was invading and so on. And then they ended up in this, you know, they won, lo and behold, and they ended up in this thing called the United States. And again, nobody knew exactly what that was. Was it still like a treaty mechanism? Was it a NATO? Was it a European Union, a bunch of sovereign states who like shared foreign policy or trade policy, um, but otherwise operated as separate nations? Or were they trying to actually build a unitary nation state of the sort that, you know, Prussia would be trying to build or France was trying to build and so on? Again, nobody knew. And nobody knew right through into the 1820s and 1830s. So the United States came into being as a contractual agreement, a means to an end for all the parties involved. And they, uh, you know, the, they weren't sure exactly where things were gonna go from there. They lacked a shared history. 
They lacked that shared religion or ethnicity. They didn't speak a unique language all their own. They spoke a language, some of them, that was uh, the language of the empire that they had just uh, abandoned. They hadn't occupied the continent long enough to think of themselves as dwelling in some kind of mythic homeland since the mists of history had fallen over the place. And they'd killed or pushed out the people who could make such a claim to this territory. They lacked a shared political heritage, apart from the imperial ties they just rebelled against, and they had no shared story about who they were and what their national purpose was. In short, they had none of the foundations and ingredients and building materials to build a nation-state. No story to bring and hold them together if indeed they intended to be, a, you know, to be building a single unitary nation. So... Um, how and when did this change, right? That was a question I was left with because clearly it did change, right? We became a United States nation with at least the idea that we had a shared history and a shared purpose. And at some point, those differences, which were everyone was aware of, you know, all the way into the 1870s at least, at some point, those differences were kind of papered over and concealed and later forgotten. We were convinced that we had a shared origin story, a shared past, a common culture, a shared sense of purpose and definition as to who should belong in the American nation and why. A national narrative, in other words. And so I wondered, who created this story? Where did it come from and when? Because I knew that there wasn't one in the 1830s, and I knew by the time you got into the early 20th century there was one, where did that show up? And who created it? And what was the ideas that they were using in creating it? And what implications does that have for us today when the Federation and the Republic again stands in jeopardy through divisions of not knowing what it is that really holds our component regional cultures together? Now, such stories like this, national narratives, have been required for almost every nation be it Germany or France or ourselves, because as individuals, think about it, to have fealty to something as abstract as a nation, right? to feel that we owe greater loyalty to it than to others or to fellow members of the nation than to people in some other box in another section of the map next door, that we're bound to those fellow members more than others, that we might ultimately indeed give our lives for it, that requires a really compelling and credible story that we as individuals can believe in, an idea that's evocative, that feels true on some level, rationally and emotionally, that has its footings in the past, that gives us an answer to that question, why are we together and for what purpose? Now, intellectuals from Harvard historian Jill Lepore to Michael Lynn to David Brooks and Ross Douthat at the New York Times across the political spectrum have pointed to the need of late for a new and revised U.S. national story or possibly a renewed version of one so as to provide a communal identity incorporating an understanding of our national origins and purpose and possible future. People need such a story, and as Lepore has put it, they can get it from scholars or they can get it from demagogues, but get it they will. A society without a credible story, historian William McNeil wrote 35 years ago, soon finds itself in deep trouble, for in the absence of believable myths, coherent public action becomes very difficult to improvise and sustain. Now, ideas are among the most powerful forces in human societies, and national narratives are among the most consequential of ideas. 
But even as they're powerful, they're abstractions. Just see that term, national narrative, part of your eyes glaze over. In writing Union, I was interested in exactly how something goes from being an idea in some person's head to somehow getting out into the zeitgeist out there, into the grand you know, shared consciousness, and thus reshapes the world. So I wanted to write this story, the story of the creation and fighting over what our story would be as a nation, um, biographically, through the lives of the, and actions of the people who came up with this story and who fought with one another over these consequential ideas. To understand, right, their families, their childhoods that shaped them, their friends and mentors, their enemies, their experiences, good and bad, that shaped their ideas of what America should be or was, and gave them the ability to spread them into the world, the platform, and have them take root. And so Union, you know, endeavors to read like a novel. It has shared storylines, separate storylines of the key figures who will be fighting this out in parallel narratives that you know, collide with each other as the, as the characters uh, interact and their ideas uh, collide with each other as well. I, because you know, not only is that you know, a more compelling way to tell a story, but it's one of the best ways to possibly understand and research such material. You know, unless you're taking that approach, of following the people themselves and where they got these ideas and how they put them forward, you're not going to ask as a researcher quite the right questions. You're not going to realize as you're following each one of these people and plotting them where they start interacting with other events that wouldn't have occurred to you to look under. Who else was in the room with them at that moment or this moment? You know, what, what other influences were happening right around them at those times when they changed their ideas from one to the other and they started to evolve? It gives you a sense and ties them to the history that was happening around them and the history that they would then shape. Now, I thought when I started this project, that my story in Union would be beginning in the 1870s and 1880s, in the aftermath of the Civil War and the collapse of Reconstruction. I thought, entering this from American nations, that essentially the story would be that everyone understood essentially that we were these rival regional cultures and that we were in a federation together and we didn't like each other and we didn't agree on anything and we just fought a civil war over whether we were separate sovereign republics and such, but that after the Union victory in the Civil War and the realization that the Union couldn't impose and reshape its rival cultures through its occupation, the collapse of Reconstruction, that at some point in there, there was this need by everybody, if you're going to have a peace between white people in the North and South, you would have to come up with a new story that somehow would tie the two together, that would explain around the conflict that had just been fought over slavery, about the profound differences in the national purpose that a slaveholding republic and a not slaveholding republic have. You would have to retell, that, and that must have been the moment when this new national story was created that created a United States nation. The, 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 the effort to get around that conflict, to heal from the conflict that hundreds of thousands have died in. But to my surprise, the story actually started much earlier. The battle was joined in the 1830s, when an ad hoc story that the United States had been using was no longer sufficient to hold the young, nascent, early republic United States together. Because the original story after the revolution, all the way up into the early 19th century, was that 
hey, you know, we, you know, Virginians may be totally different from Massachusetts, but we all got together and we beat the British, right? We, we won. We won the American Revolution. The shared struggle and George Washington led us and the founding fathers uh, created this constitution and that's amazing. Um, but it's this shared struggle and shared victory that brings us all together as Americans, even as we ha have these different paths and backgrounds and such. But that was starting not to work so well with time. First of all, by the time you got to the 1830s, the idea of unity had been challenged and shattered, not just hypothetically, but you know, parts of greater Appalachia had tried to secede during the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s and form their own countries. Um, during the War of 1812, it was so unpopular that New England's leaders gathered together in Hartford, Connecticut to contemplate a secession of New England, that many people thought that indeed the country would break as many of the founding fathers wrote during the early Republic period and wrote during the 1780s and 90s into multiple confederations, a northern confederation, a central one, and a southern one. Um, and there were growing tensions by that point over slavery, because while the founding fathers had assumed that slavery would just die away, they would ban it, and of course it would just wither away, and they wouldn't have to deal with the problem, it could move on, it was, by the 1820s and 1830s, it was becoming clear that the institution of slavery was growing. It was here to stay, and suddenly, you know, the Tidewater and deep southern gentry and oligarchs who had been making noises and being slightly embarrassed in the 1770s about it were boisterously and aggressively defending the system and expanding it. And that created an enormous tension, as you might imagine, because the institution of slavery and a society divided into castes of propertied pe people who are property and people who are, have citizenship rights is at odds with the fundamental statement in our opening statement, the Declaration of Independence, right? The innate equality of humans and their inalienable rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and representative self-government, right? That doesn't <laughs> mesh together with a slaveholding republic, right? Modeled on the classical republics of, of antiquity, on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where a small minority of people at the top of the pyramid have the liberty or privilege to practice democracy, and servitude and enslavement is the natural lot of the many. Those two can't fit together. You can't square those easily uh, into one narrative. In short, the country was devolving into a sort of national security threat by the 1830s, the generation who had fought in the American Revolution had died off. They were no longer, there was no shared living memory of those events. And slavery was starting to tear the country apart. And so everyone realized somewhere out there, anyone who thought about these things, that there needed to be a narrative, a, you know, that, that if there wasn't a story to hold things together, that we would end up drifting apart, you know, peacefully or not. This is Maine-based New York Times bestselling author Colin Woodard speaking in Blue Hill recently about his latest book, Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Yeah, well, it turned out that there wasn't just one story, though, when I started researching this. There were two stories in competition from the outset, a battle over the soul of the nation that unfortunately continues to this very day. And I'll talk to you a little bit about the story in brief through the characters involved uh, before I'll just open it up to questions. Now, it begins with this man, George Bancroft. He's the first one to have the audacity and the platform to package and put forward 
an answer, a story of who the, what the United States is, and uh, an idea of a unified America. Now, a little bit about George Bancroft. It's for readers of American Nations. It's important to know that he was a Yankee New Englander through and through, about as pedigreed as you could get in that regard. He was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, the son of a leading Unitarian uh, preacher of great influence from an old intellectual family. They didn't have much money, but in New England, that wasn't as important as the sort of um, you know intellectual uh, credentials uh, that, they, that, uh, that his family had. He was sent to Phillips Exeter, and then from Phillips Exeter went on to Harvard, where he would graduate at the age of 17. And the key thing in this experience of this, you know, hyper New England intellectual coming out of, he was at the top of his class, in the class of 1818, and he um, was sent um, by President Kirkland uh, on a mission along with a few other of the most promising graduates of that era, Edward Everett and others, who were... Kirkland realized that what New England needed and what Harvard needed and what maybe the United States needed was the creation of a real university system of the sort that was starting to form in different parts of Europe. At that point, Harvard and William and Mary and all those institutions were like glorified boarding schools where you sent your, you know, your, your tweens and teens to keep them out of trouble and teach them some moral philosophy and maybe they'll go on and become congregational preachers. But they weren't places of like rational scholarly inquiry, you know, looking at facts and you know, using uh, you know, evidence to try to prove things. That was a new and nutty idea that kind of freaked out a lot of the Puritans that was happening at the new universities, especially in Germany. And that was a place where you could get a new degree based on all this evidence and rational thinking, a PhD. And Kirkland wanted to create a new cadre of PhDs to come back to Harvard and other institutions in the United States and create a real, what we would consider, a real higher education university system. So he was sending these young, most promising graduates to Germany to get PhDs, because there weren't any in North America. And so at 17, George Bancroft is taken and sent off to study in Göttingen and Berlin. And he goes there, at, after, you know, this is shortly after the Napoleonic Empire collapsed, when Germany itself was trying to get, Germany was a, a whole constellation of hundreds and hundreds of micro-states and, you know, archduchies and free cities and so on, um, who had their own customs and their own princes and their, their own sovereign states, but were loosely organized in a confederation, the German confederation. And they were ideas that maybe they should become a unitary state because they all shared a common thing, a Germanness. And the intellectuals who were writing about this and promoting the ideas that would lead to many European ideas of what a nation state is, about what a nation and a peoples are, as opposed to being you know, your allegiance is to whatever sovereign happens to have, uh, you know, hit the pecking order to be your sovereign, and their religion would matter, that no, there's something called nations and peoples, and each of them should have a state. All of these ideas would be created by George Bancroft's professors that he was studying under. He studied, studied under Hegel and Herring and von Humboldt. He then, with letters of introduction from these people, was going around on these crazy backpacking tours, going out and hanging out with Goethe, you know, in his cottage, going to Paris and, you know, going to crazy dinner parties at Lafayette's house, wandering the English countryside with, you know, Gallatin and Washington Irving. He's off, you know, backpacks all the way to... Uh, 
to Rome and on his way, you know, is, is uh, going to parties where he's dancing with Napoleon's niece and, you know, meeting all of the dignitaries there with these letters of introduction from the, from the, uh, from the von Humboldts and others. He ends up on his way back. He's passing through northern Italy and what should be in the harbor but the USS Constitution, old Ironsides, it's now down in Boston, was there paying a port visit. So he goes out on the deck and who should climb up also visiting but Lord Byron and his mistress who, of course, invite him over to their villa for wine and he hangs up. In other words, by the time this young man, you know, a few years later in the early 1820s gets back to New England, he is integrated into the world of letters. He's a member of this, you know, fraternity of people and intellectual ideas. He's been um, drowned in the ideas of European ideas that, that um, there is, some, you know, a... a, a Peoples and nations are organic, organic entities that grow from a seed, that it's inevitable. God has already decided or history has already decided what the seed will become, and they evolve from their internal instructions, and each have different characteristics. And the Germans have certain characteristics. And the idea that history has a plan, there's a direction to history, historicism, and, the, and all these concepts were all rolling in his heads. And he was being asked by all these Europeans who were fascinated by the young American republic, to answer as an American. Instead of being a Massachusettsian, being asked questions, he was being asked to speak for America and Americanness. And placed in that position, had to come up with answers. And so by the time he comes back to New England and fails at a variety of occupations, being a preacher and a poet and a boarding school person and a professor, he wrote some incredibly bad poetry, which is quoted in Union. He finally ends up sitting down and writing the beginnings of what would become our story, which would fold out in the history of the United States he would write. Not the history of Connecticut or Massachusetts, but a history of the United States that would come out in a series of 10 volumes that would take him much of his 92 years to write. Uh, the first volume coming out in the 1830s and then subsequent volumes thereafter, and all of them together only bringing you up to the time of the Constitutional Convention. It's a prehistory of the United States, proving that all these different cultures all shared in one mission and one idea that's put forward. And that idea he fused with his Puritan heritage, right? The idea the Puritans believed they were covenanted people charged by God to create a more perfect society, and in a sense, because they were God-chosen, Maybe they couldn't fail, that America had a quest, that we had been handed from the German Teutons in the Black Forest. The torch of liberty and freedom and freedom-lovingness had been handed to the Anglo-Saxons in England and then to the United States. The United States was now destined and chosen to spread ideas of freedom, the ideas in the Declaration of Independence across the world and across the continent. Someone would describe some of his ideas as a manifest destiny that they must happen. These ideas, though, that the, what holds us together isn't really a shared past, but a shared commitment to the idea ideals in the declaration that I talked about before, that that's what makes Americans Americans. And theoretically, although you know, Bancroft believed the Anglo-Saxons had a leading role, the idea of being an American was open to anyone in theory, that anyone who ascribed to these ideals could be an American and part of the experiment. So there you had this civic national idea, nationalism based on a set of ideals um, rather than something else. So his ideas were almost immediately countered by one of his uh, acquaintances and intellectual peers uh, who he'd interact with in New York, the Center of Publishing, and that was this man, William Gilmore Sims, 
who um, was not a Yankee. He was from Charleston. He was a deep Southerner and had a completely different take on the American experiment. He's forgotten today, but uh, William Gilmore Sims was uh, one of the most successful, by some uh, accounts, the best-selling author of the antebellum period in the United States and hands down the antebellum South and the Confederacy's leading man of letters, a man who dabbled in politics and, uh, and uh, created journals but also uh, built himself up a massive slave plantation through good marriages and was a champion of the uh, deep southern take on things that know, you know, the United, this is a classical republicanism that he and his uh, fellow deep southerners and tidewater um, intellectuals would argue in the 1830s and 1840s explicitly that Jefferson was wrong in the declaration, that humans are obviously unequal. In fact, only certain peoples are capable of practicing you know, the, 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 the rights and freedoms declared in the Declaration of Independence. And those people are the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. And other peoples are culturally, or perhaps they didn't have the word genetically, but perhaps inherently incapable of practicing those things and aren't fully humans in the definition of things. That the different, in Sims's view, the different uh, colonial projects, the different states were each the homelands of the Anglo-Saxon people through whose genius the American Revolution had happened, and that what was wonderful about the United States was that it was a collection of these places that defended and gave them fruition, an umbrella that would protect this experiment. And he argued this very forcefully in his books and novels and uh, journal articles, and that battle was quickly joined. So from the beginning, I mean, it's early as Bancroft's civic national vision, which many of you will recognize had been put forward, an ethno-national vision had been put forward, that what defines Americans are particular bloodlines and backgrounds, and that other people are excluded or not fully human, right? Ethno-nationalism, in the end, it's about one group of people belongs and are the real Hungarians, Icelanders, Japanese, Germans, whatever you want to call it, Americans, and, but other people are excluded. And that exclusion can change over time as to who belongs and who doesn't. But uh, in the early form, it was the Anglo-Saxons and then slowly expanded to different uh, groups of people, but always others explicitly excluded. So that was, the, that was hurtling us towards the Civil War. The uh, next character who can move forward, yeah, he's got the Confederates' uh, money, is uh, this man who you all recognize, Frederick Douglass, who ended up being the pivotal figure in our national story. He's born a little bit after these two, but is in the middle of the collision that they are happening. For those who don't know his story, I mean, he's a, he was a, a born in slavery in the eastern shore of Maryland, escaped in a daring and a hair-raising escape uh, from, uh, from slavery by, uh, you know, it's the equivalent of like, hijacking yourself on a you know, SpaceX capsule to escape from slavery. He got on board. He was in living in Baltimore and enslaved in Baltimore and uh, boarded one of the early passenger trains. The first train line in the United States ran from Baltimore up towards Philadelphia and was carefully guarded to make sure that no slaves could escape. He had to have documents. He went in disguise you know, with, with forged documents or somebody else's documents and uh, made a harrowing escape to New York. New York was not safe. New Netherland was tolerant 
tolerant of all kinds of things, including slavery. There were slave catchers everywhere, but fortunately he bumped into members of the Underground Railway who plucked him and sent him and his fiancée and then almost uh, immediately wife to the relative safety of Yankeedom in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he was working as a day laborer until discovered quite by accident his oratorical skills. The early abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison and his group, ran across this young laborer who had escaped from slavery and had an incredible story to tell firsthand what slavery is like and was incredibly good at doing it and had in secret covertly taught himself to read and write, which he wasn't allowed to do and could do both of those well. And they swept him up and put him on to be their new star speaker at a time when speaking was the way you got the word out. Right? There was sort of like Twitter of the age. There was a Twitter in the early 19th century where you might get out your ideas about you know, a great national identity. You would get on a stage like this and you would speak and everyone in town would come because they had nothing else to do. There was no TV. And you'd come in the evening and you'd hear this speech and the local newspaper would write the whole speech down and publish it usually in its entirety. They would print it out and publish it out and then that would get sent and would you know, go on the stagecoach or on a ship and get to the next town or the next city and the newspaper editor would subscribe to all the other papers and he would look at this tweet of this speech and he would, if he liked, retweet it by taking the entire thing and laying it out and publishing it in his paper and then it would move on. Or if they didn't like, because newspapers had different politics, they would take excerpts of it and then they would you know, comment above it and mock it or say, yes, this is absolutely right or I counter with this. They were putting their comments into the things and tweeting them out again and then somebody else would discover it somewhere far away and would read it and say, this is outrageous and they would go and give their own speech countering it and then the process would begin again and some of these speeches end up in books then people would write book and journal form that was how in that era ideas got around and got around probably down because there was less competition the average person probably heard about these things from their friends and stuff very quickly and that's how the battle over any big idea including the you know ideas of nationhood was fought and Frederick Douglass was incredibly gifted in both of these things and became a superstar, sent around in trains and everything by the Garrisonians all over the northern tier, you know, out into the Midwest, and eventually having to flee um, the fugitive slave law, he ended up fleeing to Ireland and, uh, and Britain, uh, where he went around speaking there and became a massive international star. Uh, and he used this power to call out both Sims and Bancroft, uh, Bancroft, because Bancroft believed that everything was inevitable. Sims, because Sims believed, uh, didn't believe in the ideals and Declaration of Independence. But f uh, Frederick Douglass was the one who articulated the fact that, yes, we're a civic nation. Those ideas, deals in the Declaration are ideals, and they're good ideals. But you Americans, you white Americans, have failed. Where it's aspirational ideas. It's a hypocrisy constantly, and you're betraying the ideals constantly. Don't do that. His entire career was imploring, believing, perhaps, you know, falsely, that by and large, that white people in the North and Yankeedom and the Midlands, uh, if their conscience was raised, would eventually do the right thing and try to execute those ideals. And in doing so, he articulates some of the best versions in, and um, descriptions of what the United States civic national narrative is that have been ever created. And it, the influence echoes through to today. And then you get on as, the, uh, as you move forward. Uh, the, the story, my mission, is to tell in Union 
from the beginning of this struggle to create a national story to the point where one of these national stories had finally won, at least for a time, the battle and was the consensus story across the entire Federation. And it turns out that didn't happen until the 1910s and 1920s. And then it did happen, but, you know, kind of shockingly, but maybe it explains a lot, it's the ethno-nationalist white supremacist story that first wins the day in that time period before the civic national one. And the key moment in that is the ascendancy of this man, Woodrow Wilson, to the presidency of the United States. Because it's often said that the South lost the war but won the peace. And the moment when they had the crowning glory of winning the peace is when Wilson ascended to the White House. Because Wilson, we think of him as, you know, the president of Princeton University, right? But no, he's, Woodrow Wilson was raised in the Deep South, you know, first in uh, Georgia, um, you know, during the Civil War, and his father, who he looked up to and repeatedly said was the most important and influential person who he wanted to impress and follow, was the leading light in the uh, Confederate Presbyterian Church, and he had made his uh, mark by a famous sermon retweeted everywhere and republished throughout the South that argued that slavery was ordained by God. And, you know, so a virulent white supremacist, they then moved uh, in the aftermath of the war to Columbia, South Carolina, the capital after after Sherman had burned it and uh, ended up being the center in Reconstruction, in the failure of Reconstruction, the, the, the big events ended up happening in South Carolina, a lot of them right in the South Carolina Capitol building located just a few blocks from Wilson's home. And in his ideas, he was imbued with these ideas of Anglo-Saxon supremacy and the inferiority of other races and peoples. Races meaning other ethnographies. He didn't like Hungarians, he didn't like Slavic people, uh, all sorts of people were on his list. And it's in, if you look, it's in his academic writing. It's in the histories he wrote before he was president at uh, Princeton. It's in uh, his speeches and stuff that he executed and certainly was within his policies once he entered the White House. Because it's uh, Woodrow Wilson who segregates the federal government, right? The Union government, uh, uh, you know, which had been, uh, not been segregated during the Civil War. It's Woodrow Wilson who, when the first blockbuster Hollywood film came out, the film that created Hollywood, the film whose creation discovered the tiny village of Hollywood while trying to find a location for this epic film and ended up filming lots of it right there, Birth of a Nation. A film that you, know, you all know from film history, incredible technical breakthroughs. Instead of being a 10-minute you know, a, a film you'd show for a nickel to you know, low grades and degenerate people and have it be, it was supposed to be high art. It was you know, multiple reels and hours long with hundreds of extras and a staggering budget like no one had ever seen and was shown in the greatest you know, opera houses and venues that existed in all of the different cities. A film that championed the Ku Klux Klan's terror, deadly terrorist campaign to roll back the political emancipation of African Americans during the Reconstruction period, many of the events taking place right in Columbia, right near Woodrow Wilson's house. The film, though, as you might imagine, provoked massive, when it came out in, in uh, the 1910s, a massive backlash at the time. There were huge protests in all the cities that were, and protesters coming out. The, uh, some of the first big African-American organized uh, civil rights protests kicked off there, especially in Boston, to try to stop this film. Because in this time period, the Supreme Court had not yet ruled that artistic productions are protected speech under the First Amendment. So mayors and governors 
theaters and such routinely banned uh, you know, theater productions and films that were considered to be uh, you know, corrosive of public morals. And that's exactly what the protesters were asking the mayor of Boston and the mayor of New York to do, is to stop this outrageous film that distorted the history and championed you know, vile ideas that you know, tens of thousands of Union soldiers had uh, died to put down. Um, and at the critical moment, uh, the you know, guy who wrote the book the film was based on and the co-producer with D.W. Griffith, a guy named Thomas Dixon Jr. did a Hail Mary pass to try to uh, stop the uh, closing of the film in the major markets, which would have bankrupted them if it hadn't been able to be shown in the big cities. And so he went to his best buddy and graduate school friend from Johns Hopkins University, the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, and said, you know, basically, can you help me out? And Wilson showed the film in the White House to his entire cabinet, a fact that went out in the newspapers the next day. On the strength of that, uh, Thomas Dixon went across town to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice White, and said, hey, would you like to show this film? And Chief Justice White uh, apparently had been in the Klan and thought the film was great and showed it to the Supreme Court and all the heads of Congress in the finest hotel in the city. And that, if you're a mayor or a governor and suddenly you're reading the dispatches that this film has been shown in these venues, obviously you're not going to ban it and was able to carry forward. But the point is that throughout his work in the League of Nations and stuff, this was the triumph of this Jim Crow era South when all these Confederate monuments are going up that's leading to the 1924 Immigration Act, the one the 1965 Act we have now replaced. The 1924 Immigration Act basically ended like a cleaver all that great, you know, 19th, early 20th century immigration waves that we romanticize. It said enough is enough. This is the country of the Anglo-Saxons. We're going to put forward racial and ethnic quotas to preserve the Anglo-Saxon heritage of the United States. And that was the entire stated purpose of the 1924 Immigration Act was to cut off all of that uh, immigration. So it's that era where all these things were coming together. If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM, and you're listening to New York Times bestselling author and Maine-based author Colin Woodard speaking in Blue Hill recently about his most recent book, which is titled Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. They love Woodrow Wilson so much that Woodrow Wilson is quoted, his history of the United States is repeatedly quoted, it's a silent movie, right, in those frames, you know, to justify and you know, um, annotate the key arguments that the film was making. Uh, and then finally, there's this man, Frederick Jackson Turner, the final of the key characters, friend of Woodrow Wilson's. And uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, unlike the rest of these people, was not from the eastern seaboard of the United States. He was a man of the West, which then incorporated the Midwest. He was born in Wisconsin, in Portage, Wisconsin, when it was a frontier-like town. He uh, taught at the, uh, um, he went to uh, Madison and taught at the uh, University of Wisconsin and became essentially the head of the history department at a very young age, and he not surprisingly argued that none of that stuff on the East Coast, even slavery in North versus South, is really what formed Americans. No, it was the West and the Midwest that formed it, that America didn't exist and Americans didn't exist until they showed up in my region of the country. And his argument was, because by the time he's writing, right, he's at the peak of his career in the 1890s and the 1900s and 1910s when Darwin's uh, theories had managed to infuse the social sciences. And so that was the latest rage. And what he said is, 
when Americans came from the eastern seaboard over the Appalachian Mountains into the Grand Valley of the Mississippi, in other words, until, you know, all the way from the Rocky Mountains to the Appalachian Mountains, that they discovered what, you know, Bank, what uh, Turner believed was an Eden. And in that crazy frontier environment, stripped away from, you know, the feudal history and the taint of Europe and all of that, that Americans were suddenly free to become well, Americans, that in that environment, they had to adapt like Darwin's finches to this new frontier environment. And in doing so, they became self-sufficient and, uh, you know, civic-minded and self-starters and independent. All these American things that reinforced democracy had all happened in the West. And it's that idea, his frontier thesis that he put forward very famously at the Chicago World's Fair and quickly became a massive viral intellectual idea that quickly infused the textbooks of the new public high schools that were being created across the country, uh, uh, the motion pictures and television shows, uh, the way that college curricula were created and that other historians wrote history, we're all looking at that idea, right, that the West is where the true Americans are. John Wayne, Davy Crockett, Westworld, you know, whatever you have, that's where America is born. And that idea is alternarian. Only, as you will learn in Union, uh, Turner quickly discovered after putting forward that paper, that white paper at the Chicago World's Fair, because he was a demon researcher and he kept digging into his filing cabinets and rolling out all these new statistical maps at the county level showing you election results and soil sample rates and the location of key industries and where churches were located. He started realizing that that was not correct, that the evidence didn't support it, that when he followed the New England Yankee settlement zone, the tier of the Yankee New Englanders moving into the West from New England to upstate New York, from upstate New York to the Western Reserve of Connecticut, i.e. the Western Reserve of Ohio, from there into Michigan and Wisconsin and parts of Indiana and not others. And then he looked at down further south, coming from Kentucky, the greater Appalachians, rafting down the Ohio Valley and settling the lower tiers of Ohio and Indiana and downstate Illinois and much of Missouri, that even though they were supposedly in the same environment, that they had completely different ideas about everything. And he started realizing and writing, oh my gosh, it's the sections, it's the different regional cultures that actually matter, and that the interplay of them is the story of American history. And he wrote it down. He started writing his magnum opus book. He started talking about it and putting out journal articles. But He's like, you know, a, you know, one of those, you know, a band that has a number one hit early in their career on their first album. And for the rest, you know, 30 years later, they're out there and, you know, they try to play the new stuff and no one wants to hear it. They just want to hear the number one ballad, you know, shut up. We don't want the new stuff, right? No one would really listen to it and take him seriously. They were all caught up in the frontier thesis. And so uh, the book he tried to create, he was a procrastinator and he would spend decades working on it. Never quite got completed, but uh, might have resembled a little bit American. American nations in many respects. Now that's just a synopsis of the grand story at work, but that's the battle over our nation, a battle between an ethnic and a civic nationhood, and a battle that, uh, you know, the, the ethnic nationhood argument won the day in the 1910s and 20s, but would be overthrown in the 1960s for our civic national one. And, you know, I being a Gen Xer, right, you know, I'm 
born at the end of the 1960s, you know, I grew up with the idea that, of course, the civic national narrative was triumphant and that all of that, you know, awful stuff that happened in the past has been defeated and we're progressively moving towards uh, achieving the ideals and declaration of independence. And hey, look, we elected Barack Obama twice, right? Things must be okay. But of course, the old, you know, the other force, the, the, the force that has bedeviled our country since the beginning of white supremacy and ethno-national definition has roots that go very deep and are obviously still with us today and, you know, alive and kicking and still endangering the republic. So I will stop it there and open it up for questions. I can probably look at one. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Yes, please, sir. I uh, read the book and really enjoyed it. I can't okay. remember if Bancroft and Woodrow Wilson actually met each other. I know that Bancroft lived to be 99. Yeah, they, they overlap. As far as I know, those two didn't meet face-to-face. Um, they were, you know, keying, he keyed off Bancroft's ideas, but by the time, you know, Wilson is a, what, a child, and well, he's born in like 1857 or something like that, and so... By the time he's really like uh, somebody with his own intellectual ideas being put forward, Bancroft is kind of in his dotage, you know, is already mistaking, you know, people who come to visit him because they all, you know, there was a vigil, right? You know, the Washington Post and New York Times would publish every time, you know, Bancroft, you know, um, you know caught cold. It was a major news, you know. George Bancroft, you know, sick, you know, everyone's monitoring to see whether or not he die. And, but, you know, he, was, he would have visitors come and visit him. He would start mistaking them for people who'd been dead 60 years before and stuff by then. So there wasn't a direct, like, you know, interaction. But, you know, Bancroft was a towering statesman too, right? He didn't just write in his ivory tower. He participated in events. He was the, the Democratic Party boss of Massachusetts when Massachusetts was Whig and Federalist, ran for governor there, was appointed by Polk to be Secretary of the Navy, and created the Academy at Annapolis. That's him. That's why there's a Bancroft Hall there and USS Bancrofts. He was uh, interim Secretary of War and gave the orders that ultimately resulted in the war and the annexation of Texas. Gave orders as Secretary of the Navy to his naval detachments in California who seized California, right? I mean, he, was, you know, he became a towering figure, ambassador for us in the United Kingdom and later back in Germany and you know, was an enormously powerful political actor as well. But again, you know, Wilson would have known him and he would have been a stunning figure, but was no longer, by the time Wilson was ascending, wasn't, you know, in the game anymore. His ideas were starting to be pushed aside as, as you know, the, the rational evidence-based inquiry of the Victorian age where everything can be known and we shall discover the mechanisms of the universe, you know, and Bancroft with his, you know, the hand of God and providence was just, you know, kind of on the outs by then. Uh, yes, please, the back. Why do you think uh, that this idea uh, has reared its head again so strongly when the economic groups, which were slavery and an economy that was built on slavery, no longer exist? Why is there such power uh, still behind that, uh, yeah. that movement? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that has power everywhere, unfortunately, in Homo sapiens, right? Somewhere in our primitive parts of our brain, the danger of the other, and the, you know, we were, right, we evolved as bands, right? Social bands against the other bands of humans, and we got to beat out those other bands, and, you know, the, 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 idea back there that we are one group and we got to watch out for that group out there works wonders. So when you're putting forward and arguing a narrative that says 
we, you and I and you and you, but not them, are you know, the, the, the people who belong and matter. The ethno-national argument uh, around the world is often a very successful argument to put forward. And it's on the rise, you know, it's on the rise again in many of the pure liberal democracies out there, right? Victor Orban's, you know, a liberal, you know, republic he's putting forward in Hungary, where I used to live. And, you know, the rise of in Poland, you're seeing the extremists, you're seeing Vladimir Putin steer Russia down that ethno-nationalist path, which is kind of a divergence and a breakaway from, you know, Soviet, uh, you know, national myth-making, which would have, uh, you know, avoided that part of things while being tyrannical in others. So it's a powerful force just in general. Why does it still persist in the United States? Well, I think it's always been out there, you know, and it was an, you know, a, the dominant idea in living memory, right? It was the dominant consensus in the 1950s, certainly in the 1930s, right? And was still in the textbooks that many baby boomers would have read in high school. Those ideas were in the, the, the most popular textbooks were borrowing from Woodrow Wilson's, uh, you know, texts, which are keyed off Sims's ideas. So we haven't been away from it from very long either. And so when you get into times, you know, you don't have the rise of demagogues and extremism and stuff when things are going good. And, you know, for the, in the United States in recent decades, you know, the social contract has been weakened and eroding the gulf between the wealthy and everyone else, relative power, accountability for breaking laws and everything has clearly been deteriorating. And the animosity, people have different reasons as to who they blame for the set of events that might not match, but the anger and sense that things are going wrong, that America is being betrayed, whether you're on you know, left or right or however you want to define it, you have a totally different idea of you know, that, that, uh, who's responsible, but the idea that things are going well, I don't think a lot of people are really sensing that, and that's exactly the environment where any nasty you know, stuff you have in your history starts rising up. You know, I'm a, it was originally a student in the Balkans in Eastern Europe. I was in Eastern Europe uh, for the fall of communism and stayed there my whole beginning of my journalism career was the 1990s and my 20s, watching all this stuff unfold, right? And you know, Milosevic and Vladimir Mechiar in, Serb in, uh, in uh, Slovakia and, you know, the Jan Iliescu in Romania, they're all drawing on these same ideas. You pull in your history and the details may be different. For Milosevic, you can stand out there and say, you know, no one will ever beat you Serbs again standing on a battlefield where, you know, the Ottomans defeated the Serbs, the Muslim, you know, invasion, you know, the Serbs failed, right? They lost the battle, but we will never lose again and we're going to hold the line against you know, the, the Muslims and be the champions, the ethno-national champions of Orthodox Christendom and such, right? And that evokes, it works. But, it don't, you know, it works when Yugoslavia is already deteriorating and collapsing and there's uncertainty and he wants to stay in power and stuff. So I think we're at one of those moments that has parallels with all the other times demagogues pop up. The situation in the United States isn't as dire as, you know, the economic and social situation in Germany in the early 1930s, or even probably in Yugoslavia in the late 1980s, but it seems to be, you know, displaced enough for there to be that opening, so. Oh, yes, please. Um, how, how does de Tocqueville fit into this? Yeah. This is a foreigner looking at the United States and he wrote about democracy of America, and and sort of took that message back to Europe. So yeah. How does that fit? Yeah, de Tocqueville's, you know, a remarkable. He's trying to understand um, how it is that the United States has created this successful republic. And he wants something like this to happen back in France. And he's trying to understand what the forces are. And he's coming in, what, the, he's also in, the, what, the 1820s? 
He's there. I remember he ends up at the same time that William Gilmore Sims is exploring the backcountry of the Deep South with his estranged dad and, you know, hanging out amongst Native Americans and, you know, backcountry settlers and learning their ways and things that will fuel his novels. De Tocqueville is passing through the same area, like, you know, within six or seven months on the same roads and stuff. So he's there in the same era. But, you know, De Tocqueville is trying to understand, you know, the failure, you know, that the French Revolution has failed and your end at the end of the Napoleonic period. What are the differences? What are the intrinsic values within America that makes America work? But if you read it, and if you've read American Nations, you start realizing that all of the things he puts forward as the strengths, he's drawing as his evidence Yankeedom and the Yankee frontier. He went to the Deep South, but he doesn't reference that. He talks about the incredible literacy of the frontiersmen out in, you know, when he's out visiting whatever, Michigan or, you know, Wisconsin or somewhere like that, or upstate New York, and how they're all in touch with the currents of the day and how the town meeting form of government acts as a garden for the Republican citizenry you must cultivate to have hope of having a democratic, what we would call liberal democracy, that, that that's, the, that's the institution that does it, and you see people have commitment in their local tiny town that in Blue Hill, Maine, there's a little tiny republic and they control you know, all kinds of things that would be at county level in almost any other region of the country, but certainly in Europe, it would be a national government function. But town, town meeting governments don't exist outside of the Yankee zone, barely outside of New England. All the things he was drawing from, he was essentially inspired by one of our regional culture's stories, and it was such an amazing story, and the people he was listening to the most were at Edward Everett, right, who preceded Bancroft to Germany, was one of his guides and telling him, sending him pamphlets. There's, there's whole books written about deconstructing how de Tocqueville put together his stuff, looking at de Tocqueville's letters and the stuff he had at hand, and essentially he's mistaking Yankeedom for the country at large. So it's tremendously influential, and what he's writing is incredibly perceptive, but is missing the picture because it's not quite accounting for the balkanized nature of the United States. Uh, somebody up here, yeah, you had your head up, and I'll come over to you. So now that Union unravels the genetic code of our culture, can you write the next book, Vaccine, <laughs> gives us the mRNA to ward off the destructive viruses within our culture? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I am at the stage where I'm, you know, thinking about what my next book project is, and since we're broadcasting out in WERU, I probably won't pull the, 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 my current idea out of a hat because two weeks from now I may have changed my mind. This will be broadcast out there and my editor will be calling and saying, I heard this WERU thing. So, <laughs> I thought you told me. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, logically, um, you know, uh, you know uh, we are definitely in crisis. The Republic is in crisis. The future of the Federation is uncertain. The parallels with other, you know, societies that have fallen into demagoguery and stuff are there. The question, you know, I think we will get out of it but you know, the level of certainty is not as high compared to the consequences that would be at hand. So yeah, I, you know, I am very focused on and have been focused on since before Donald Trump became president with the crisis emerging in our liberal democratic system and how you, inocu you know, inoculate ourselves against it. If you go to my website, you can find links to some of the articles and things I've put out there articulating some of these things in the battle for the soul of the country that, you know, what, the direction we would need to go to do that. That website is colinwoodard.com, C-O-L-I-N, 
www.woodard.com. That was Maine-based New York Times best-selling author Colin Woodard speaking in Blue Hill on June 24th about his latest book, which is titled Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. His talk was recorded by Matt Murphy and edited to fit this time slot. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Catch us here on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 o'clock for independent local news, views, and culture. Download our archived programs and subscribe to podcasts of our shows at WERU.org and on the WERU smartphone app. You can reach us at news at WERU.org. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio WERU-FM.